G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision. Look, a conversation coming up over this next hour. It's one of those, my uh, my prediction is, it's one of those you'll want to lean in a little closer to the radio and not miss some of the finer points of what we'll be talking about because our focus is going to be on a revolutionary view of the age of fossils. So if you're someone who follows a creation-evolution debate, you will not want to miss the sorts of things we'll talk about over this coming hour. Our special guest today is an expert in how the Earth's surface is formed and changed by rivers, by the movement of tectonic plates, and by the powerful movement of oceans, air and ice. He has travelled the world collecting data analysing the rugged landscapes in the most amazing places, and he's drawn some conclusions that challenge established thinking. We'll have a special focus today on the formation of fossils. There are some new facts that have come to light that challenge the mainstream thinking around fossils and their formation. Our special guest, Dr Ron Neller. He is a geomorphologist who once was a supporter of geological evolution, but now he's a part of the team at Creation Ministries International. Ron Neller, a special welcome back to 2020. Thank you, Neil. Great to be back. Ron, before we get into some of the details in what we'll get into with fossils, uh, let me just ask you about geomorphologist. Uh, For a lot of people, that's not the sort of career they're thinking about when they're thinking about getting into science, but this has been your area of expertise. Just in quick, in a nutshell, what a geomorphologist does. A geomorphologist is a person who studies landforms. In other words, geo being earth, morph meaning shape, and ology is the study of. So I love that discipline because I get to travel all around the world, see the most beautiful landscapes, and my job is to try and understand them. Uh, Is a hobby of yours photography? Have you taken some fabulous photos in some of these landscapes? I try, Neil. I try. But uh, no, I don't have that gift, unfortunately. (laughs) So I take many, many photographs hoping that one of them will actually show. And when you talk about the most amazing landscapes, uh, when, when we might be thinking of seeing amazing landscapes, we might be thinking of waterfalls and beautiful mountain ranges and such things like that. Uh, you're talking about uh, all sorts of things that, you know, uh, earthquake disasters and uh, the different ways that the earth has changed in dramatic ways, the sorts of formations of landscape that you've been interested in? Uh, very much so. Uh, particularly those that are subject to rapid change and then looking at how they changed and uh, what were the processes that that created that change. But I still enjoy the absolutely incredible uh, terrain variation. That is a real key feature of tourism is to have cliffs and gullies and gorges and all those sorts of things. Fabulous. Hey, we'll talk some more about that. Um, I know you have written a paper just recently on another favourite topic that people love to talk about, and especially people who might be in our tropics, and that's crocodiles. Uh, Have you got a fascination with crocodiles? 
Uh, no, Neil, no. <laughs> it was just a very interesting paper, one that I, I thought was an excellent piece of work, uh, on the study of crocodiles, particularly how they became or how they were often found to be articulated. Now, that's a big word. It simply means that the parts are still bound together. So if your toes are still connected to your foot and your foot is connected to your ankle, then you are articulated if that's the way we find you. But if you find parts of the creature separated into different locations, then it's disarticulated. Now, crocodiles are often found articulated. So the question was, well, how does that occur? How are they uh, formed as crocodiles into fossils and still retain their shape uh, and their structure? People often talk about crocodiles uh, saying they're sort of our link to the, uh, you know, the dinosaurs. Uh, what sort of value do you put on that sort of observation? Well, we do know that crocodiles uh, certainly are found throughout the fossil record through the sedimentary structures that I've been looking at, you will find those those fossils. So uh, they've been around for a long, long time. Let's put it that way. And those fossils of crocodiles, are they similar to the current crocodiles that we might be observing in our waterways? I'd say very much yes. And I'm not a paleontologist, but the point being, they do. Um, and often we mistake, I think, slight variations in fossils to be another species or something else, but essentially it just reflects the variability within a species. Uh, you know, for example, if I find a young one and an old one, do I interpret them as two different species because of their different size? Those sorts of features. But uh, no, I think they're uh, fairly much the same as. And so the crocodiles being connected or articulated, uh, when you talk about them being uh, unarticulated, is that because uh, parts are found in different locations or uh, putting things together? How do you, th how do you think of that? Well, they are. They, there's there's a high percentage of them that are articulated. In other words, they are found as as an intact uh, fossil. Not the bones are not separated so much. And a study done at the University of Queensland was very very good on this and published an article of burying uh, crocodiles under certain depths of sediment or not burying them. And those that were not buried became uh, disarticulated. They become more separated. But those that were buried from the moment they uh, died, uh, they were actually then you could say they were articulated. They were then able to be, in the experiment, looked at later and still found to retain their shape and structure and so on. And so that was published in a top journal, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading. And uh, But it indicated to me simply that to create fossils, you do need rapid sedimentation or a lot of dirt moving rapidly at one time. And as you say, you're not a paleontologist. You're not necessarily the expert on the actual fossils, but in your expertise as a geomorphologist, you are the expert on how those fossils could actually form. And so crocodiles, they are an important element here because there are crocodile fossils and there are crocodiles. Uh, and some people might be thinking if there's a link to those dinosaurs, that somehow or other dinosaurs are all extinct. Well, uh, somehow or other the crocodile is, you know, it's an evidence, isn't it, that uh, there are crocodile fossils, but there are crocodiles that we can see, and we might even say, you know, lightheartedly enjoy today. I agree. Agree entirely. Um, I have I have no problem with, with that, that uh, observation there. Um, I think one of the fascinating things is that we had an initial focus on dinosaurs from way back in time. But the more we then go through the records and go back through the fossil sites, the more we find of birds and mammals and other creatures as well that we tended to ignore in the early days of our fossil exploration. 
Okay, so let's talk about fossils because you said something very, very important because when we think of fossil formation, somehow we're thinking of a gentle uh, animal dying uh, and sinking to the bottom and getting caught in some sediment that somehow or other then sets that fossil into place. And uh, for people who are thinking millions of years, they're thinking it takes millions of years to create those fossils. What's the big challenge to that idea that's coming from your observations around this crocodile that's been brought some new evidence to light? It's the it's actually the the rate and the depth of sediment. See, coming at it from a sedimentary point of view, you need to bury them fast and you need to bury them deep. You have to prevent uh, predation from other creatures. You have to apply pressure and then changes in temperature as well. And that's all got to be done rather rapidly, not in a short period. And so everybody agrees that it's got to be buried in large amounts of sediment, and those sediments have to be rapid. And there's my challenge as a sediment person. I keep asking the question, well, where does that sediment come from, and in what rates, and and what time frame? So uh, where does the sediment come from? What rate? What time frame? And this is particularly important because... You are saying that fossils are not being formed today. That means there's got to be special circumstances that happened to make those fossil formations happen. So are people surprised when you say fossils are not being formed today? There, There is a surprise expressed particularly by people when I'm speaking at various events because there is an assumption that fossils have been created throughout time. Yet today, we tend not to find that. We do find occasionally a microbe might be fossil or so on. But searching around the world in sediments today, in newly deposited sediments, does not really indicate any fossils are being formed at all at this point in time. But we have an assumption that's been put into our educational system uh, and uh, through the media and so on that these processes that occurred in the past also occur today and will occur in the future. But that's not what I saw as a sediment Tologist or, you know, studying dirt. So that's not where the evidence lies. And I guess the elephant in the room for anyone who is thinking of the evolutionary geological view of the formation of those fossils uh, is that there was, uh, that is discussed quite widely in the biblical account of creation, a huge event which could well be the formation of these fossils that we are discovering in the earth. And I'm talking about the biblical flood. Is this one of those things that you are championing here as the difference between fossils and no fossils? Uh, Yes, I am, but it was not my original argument. When I was originally searching for information and trying to understand, I had not given my life to Christ. And so what I was looking at was the rate of sediment deposition today in all environments, whether they be tropical, temperate, or (coughs) arctic, or so on, whether they be in a small flood or a large flood or a catastrophic flood. And, And what you find in thousands of studies done worldwide, you simply don't see sediment deposits today of a volume and a rate that is capable of forming fossils. So I came to the conclusion then that if no process today in any Uh, climatic environment or any particular uh, extreme event is capable of doing that, then something had to have happened in the past that is beyond our imagination. And that's as a scientist, not as a Christian. So when we think of the biblical flood, we're not necessarily thinking of the flood rains that are happening in some parts of northern Australia right now with those low-pressure systems and uh, ex-tropical cyclone Kiralee and uh, lots of flood rains and there are people who are suffering uh, with flood waters. 
But are those sorts of floods that happen, typically in our summertime, big enough for the sort of cataclysmic necessity for the burying of fossils? How do we compare the flood of biblical times with the sorts of floods we might see today? Well, the sorts of floods we see today produce only millimetres, the most centimetres of sediment over larger areas. And we need to look at large areas because fossils are found in billions and trillions over million square kilometres. So what happened in the past was very different to what we see today. We might get excited about what we see today, but in fact the amount of sediment or dirt being available is actually so minor. In fact, in a large 100-year flood, say in a Pacific island, we might see four centimetres of sediment deposited, and we get excited about that. But we know from previous studies that unless you're looking at 20 centimetres or above, uh, which we don't find anywhere around the world in a large-scale deposition, you are not going to get fossilisation. So in other words, we needed the planet torn apart. We needed sediment stirred up like it's never been stirred up before. Massive volumes, and I don't mean centimetres to be honest. We need metres, tens of metres, hundreds, even kilometres of sediment to create the temperature and the pressure needed for fossilisation. So when you let your imagination run wild and talk about the sort of sedimentary layers that have to happen for the burying of a Tyrannosaurus rex or a Brontosaurus, uh, you're talking about a, a cataclysmic event so much more than you could even possibly imagine when you think of today's floods. Exactly. And it's not even just floods, but if we look at tsunamis and other catastrophic events as well, they simply do not produce the amount of sediment that we need. And often when I speak and give the actual figures from around the world from hundreds of different studies, people look at me and going, is that all there is available? And my interpretation of that is I cannot even today fossilise a cockroach. How would I fossilise a T-Rex in today's circumstances? And Ron, just quickly, because you mentioned that when you started to make these discoveries that caused you to doubt what the modern science was saying, you were not a Christian. Correct. And so I made the statement publicly within a university that I think God exists because the Bible now, with its catastrophic flood, Noah's flood, seemed to be more realistic from a scientific point of view than an evolutionary argument. Was there silence in the room? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Silence by some, commentary by others, uh, notes on my door, unsigned. (laughs) Nasty words said. Because it's like a threat to uh, where funding comes from with grants and all sorts of things that come with the science community. It's a threat to the very paradigms scientists hold, the very belief systems. And then, yes, it does become a threat to um, funding systems. So even as I travelled around the world and began to argue this, that there was a catastrophic flood, even some of my secular, uh, well, I was still secular, but even other secular friends said, yes, there is evidence of a catastrophic flood, but please don't articulate that, Ron. Uh, We don't want to lose our funding monies. Well, I want to open talk back lines. There might be listeners who have a question to follow on from the sorts of things we've begun to talk about. You might have other questions too. Ron is uh, intelligent and across lots of different dimensions when it comes to creation and evolution. Uh, You might want to fire a question. I'm sure if it's out of his area of expertise, he'll be happy to pass that on. But uh, 1-800-316-316, to join in our conversation, you might have a question around the flood, the biblical flood from Genesis. 
and the reality of what we're hearing today where the evidence is overwhelming and it's because of the way that fossils are formed uh, that you might not have ever considered how important this is but when we have an expert in geomorphology who is our guest today and posing the evidence that is not being considered in university level circles around sedimentation and the formation of fossils uh, you might well want to know this is an an evidence that you can use in defending the biblical uh, the biblical narrative around the flood so 1-800-316-316 Ron let's take a call just before we move on to some other areas Uh, Kyle is in Jimboomba in Queensland Kyle welcome along oh hi guys how are we doing doing very well thank you Kyle what are your thoughts so my question is um, like the other cataclysmic uh, sort of uh, event they put to the extinction of the dinosaurs is like a meteor or something. Does, would would does that sort of um, would that create an event where by uh, uh, sediment and, and fossils can be formed or anything like that? Good thought, Kyle. Uh, what's your response here, Ron? Uh, my response is: Look, you you can have. Uh, meteor impacts as well, but we need to recognise that the fossils, predominantly, and I mean, I mean, ninety-nine percent or so, are actually embedded in flood sediments. Now, the meteor would have a very different impact. Every sediment has a characteristic, and so the meteors could well have had an impact in, in let's say, uh, an extinction event. But without the sediment that it arises from flood events, particularly, uh, then how do they? How do those carcasses become fossils? In other words, you do need a catastrophic fluvial or flood event, not just a meteor strike. Okay, so a meteor hitting the surface of the Earth isn't the same as the flood that comes from the surface of the Earth. Uh, any thoughts further from you, Kyle, on that? No, that pretty much sums it up. So, yes, uh, okay, uh, one more question maybe. Uh, so if the meteor, if, if, if the meteor did hit the Earth, could that cause um, different weather patterns that could cause flood events? A good extension there. Um, I would argue no, because we have looked at uh, flood events in every climatic zone, whether it be a temperate or tropical uh, or arctic. And even within, it's not just in those environments, we also look at extreme events like tsunamis, 100-year events, 200-year events, and so on. None of those events produce sediment in the quantity to rapidly bury and deeply bury uh, carcasses. So the best we've tried all around the world in all catastrophic events, we do not generate the sediment. Kyle in Jim Boomba, thanks so much for your call. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316 because this might be the question. I mean, I'm sure there might be a few brains rattling around the place saying, well, what other cataclysmic events could there be? Uh, Because the flood event seems to be the one that is necessary for the formation of fossils. Uh, People might be thinking of all sorts of, you know, strange occurrences like, you know, a meteor, you know, smashing into the Earth's surface. But you need this sedimentation so it obviously does involve water when we talk about sedimentation uh, take us into how this uh, you know excuse the pun take us a little deeper here ron uh very good question there neil um indeed there's an article that was published on on where we were able to mimic fossilization within 24 hours that was an excellent article what they've been doing in the past is putting uh, say lizard components or leaves under incredible pressure and temperature but after 24 hours, uh, upon opening up the containers or the capsules, you actually found a sort of a mushy substance. 
What they decided to do in the end is to wrap up those lizard parts or leaves into a loosely compacted clay or flood type of sediment and then place it under incredible pressure and incredible um, uh, pressure and temperature. And when they opened up those containers 24 hours later, they were stunned. And in fact, you've got you've got comments like this coming from the authors uh, that we were absolutely thrilled uh, because they look like real fossils. And uh, essentially, then the sediment removed the unstable molecules and uh, other elements like that that are liquidish out of the organism, allowing it there under that pressure, allowing it then to go into a fossilization process. And until we removed the unstable. Um, uh, let's say uh, some of those have become uh, unstable liquids or uh, things that will become gaseous and so on. Until we can get them out of the system, out of the body of the organism or whatever it is, we actually can't have fossilization. So in other words, we do need the sediment to wrap around it to allow fossilization. In fact, uh, I don't know whether I've ever shared this with you before, but um, a couple of decades ago I went to a, uh, a gem and uh, fossil um, uh, major uh, type of uh, conference thing in uh, in the United States and there were people who were selling fossils uh, that I was told were fake fossils and so there's an industry going on with fake fossils if if you're a collector uh, if you don't have your wits about you you may well be buying something that is made in 24 hours is that the sort of thing that could be happening I mean this is the this is the whole thing with fossils isn't it uh, you want the genuine fossil well, there are fake fossils around, yes. There are others, though, that are that can be created in human environments today, particularly in mine sites and so on. And uh, without going into that, if you go onto our creation.com website and ask the question about those fossils, you might find a, a hat or a boot can be fossilised in a particular mining site or so on where the conditions are quite unique. But yes, there is a lot of fake... Uh, uh, there are a lot of fake fossils going on. But the interesting thing is here, uh, when we say fossils are not being formed today, that means they're not being formed today in any natural process. Uh, you can Correct. fake the formation of a fossil, but you can't necessarily easily fake uh, the formation of a dinosaur in uh, deep in the sediments. Uh, that has to have happened with all of this pressure. So... In fact, when you talk about pressure, you're not talking about just, uh, as you say, centimetres of sediment that fall on top of it because it has to have the right pressure to be able to, to really um, encase and enclose and cause the fossilising environment for that particular set of bones. Absolutely. You've got these volatile substances and unstable substances. They have to be taken out of it, out of the organism in a, in a fairly rapid period of time. And the only way you're going to achieve that is with quite a significant sediment weight on that. Um, and so you, you are looking at tens or hundreds of metres of sediment really to create that process within the short time period. Um, because if it, if it takes too long, there'll be decomposition. And so the evidence really is in the fact that there is today insufficient sediment that could form fossils. You have to have a major cataclysmic event, and we're talking about the biblical Noah's flood. That's the uh, cataclysmic event that had the potential for forming the fossils that we see today. And that's something that does challenge the evolutionary debate. It does, quite seriously, because also when we look at the fossils, we'll find that the majority of them are marine fossils. Yet we have mapped the ocean floor 
for decades now. And the best we can sort of estimate, let's say, estimate or extrapolate if you want to look into the future, is uh, figures of like five centimetres over a thousand years. So if that's the rate of, that's the maximum rate of deposition in the oceans today, how do you create trillions of marine fossils? Five centimetres over a thousand years does not meet the rapid process required nor the depth required. And then if you take that in even to near shore coastal areas, you, you might start getting three centimetres over a thousand years. And, and still, that is just, you know, uh, or, or higher than that, 30 centimetres over a thousand years. You're still not, you've got to look at that per year because the fossils, the organism won't sit there for hundreds or thousands of years waiting to be fossilised. It will decompose. So regardless of whether you look in the oceans, the nearshore sediments, the mangrove sediments, even floodplains today, you are not going to find a deposition rate accountable and, and being able to explain why fossils have occurred in the past. So, Ron, what is the story these fossils are telling us? What does it say to us about the biblical account in Genesis of this flood and about the reliability of what we might be reading in the Bible today? What was interesting, my personal journey was one where I had to actually argue a catastrophic event that it had to be. And, uh, and I had been exposed to that, that message of, of uh, Noah's flood. And, but that, that, in order to create those amount of sediments from a sedimentary point of view, you needed violence that we've never experienced on this planet. And, and I'm, I'm talking, uh, we, we can't even comprehend it. Let's be, let's be honest. We cannot comprehend the tearing apart of the planet that must have occurred to create the amount of sediment to actually produce all of that. And so, uh, um, now, I found it uh, interesting from that point of view that I was given no option. I had to accept a biblical view. I did so and began to argue it, and that started to change my career. <laughs> that starts to change your career, and uh, you go down in the sight of your peers. Uh, they don't have the same respect for you, but you were actually arguing the evidence, and the evidence for the biblical flood. Uh, some calls coming through here, listeners that have been waiting patiently. Let's take a call from Lawrence in Perth, WA. Hey, Lawrence, welcome along. Oh, thank you very much. I understand that before Noah's flood, the climate on the earth was more uniform, but after the, climate, after, after the flood, the climate became much colder, such as at higher latitudes uh, and at the North and South Pole. But where do the ice ages fit in with the earth's history? A good question. Ron, thoughts here for Lawrence? Very good question, Lawrence. Um, there certainly was an ice age after the global flood. And uh, we have a lot of articles on that, particularly written by Michael Ord. So if you go on our website, creation.com, you will see a truckload of articles there for you to look at that particular climate change after the flood event. But we would argue there's only one flood event, oh, sorry, one ice age period. And I must admit that I was once in Finland and looking at uh, moraines and other features of ice ages, and they all look very similar and belonging to one ice age. And I said, so why, why, why does everybody here say there's so many different ice ages and every moraine they see, they give it a different name. And the answer was quite cheeky. It was, well, every person wants an ice age named after them. And so <laughs> it was interesting. But we would argue that there is evidence of only one ice age. And it was significant in particularly the northern hemisphere, not so much in the southern hemisphere. Um, and yes, now I can't comment on the period before the flood because firstly, we were not there. Um, we do have a number of articles uh 
hypothesizing and arguing various uh, options. But from my perspective, if I'm not there and can't see it, I tend to vi- I tend to steer away from those sort of hypotheses or ideas. Lawrence, anything further to add? Oh, no, thanks for that. That's cleared up that. Thank you very much. Uh, Lawrence thank in you, Perth, Lawrence. WA, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line is open on one 316 316 Before we take another call, though, uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, in all of the discussions around climate change and people reflecting on tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of years, I don't hear it reflected very often, the thought of a recent ice age that followed the flood. Any thoughts here from you on on the on the, the time that you might think uh, that ice age happened? Well, the the current paradigm has to be that it occurred a long time ago. You have to accept that from a scientific point of view, but it's not proven from a scientific point of view. They use dating techniques and so on that are quite flawed. I will admit that as a scientist, even though I had used carbon-14 and potassium argon and thermoluminescence, I actually turned away from them before I became a Christian because they're highly unreliable. They're they're very unreliable. And so I did not trust them anymore. But um, coming back to your your question then... um, yeah, it's, it's a belief system that it is old. Uh, I, I don't accept that. I think the morphologic evidence, the sedimentologic evidence and so on uh, would indicate that it was only uh, a few thousand years ago, say 4,000 years ago. Uh, that's an incredible bit of evidence uh, that you can take into a conversation around Noah's flood, uh, this catastrophic uh, cataclysmic uh, flood that we're talking about is the formation of fossils and a following ice age. So one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. If you've got a question for our special guest today, Steve is in Riverview, Ipswich, in Queensland. Hey, Steve, welcome along. Thanks, Neil. How are you? Very well. What are your thoughts, Steve? Okay, so the formation of fossils is very quick. Excuse me a minute. I've got a timer going. <laughs> <laughs> right, sorry. Uh, the formation of fossils is <laughs> good on you, Neil. You're a good dad joker. <laughs> <There> you <go. laughs> Steve, um, don't, I don't interrupt fossil... you. Yes, uh, yes. All right. How about the formation of diamonds? Is that quick? Diamonds. Mm. Good question. I think I'll have to send you to creation.com to get the latest on that. I, I would say okay. yes. I would say yes. Um, All right. I would not say it's short period because most of what we see in terms of uh, ore, you know, coal and so on, and those sort of, yep. uh, it. I mean, we, we're seeing a complete restructuring of the of the um, earth features, the landforms, and so on. So, uh, yes. Um, now, again, I'm not an expert in diamonds. My wife would like me to be an expert in diamonds, but I'm not. Uh, so I would go to thecreation.com and have a look at a couple of the mineralogists who actually have written on diamonds. They'll bring you up to speed with that one. So, Sorry there, Steve. Am I allowed a couple more questions? Uh, yes, one more question? yes. Fire away, Steve. Okay. The formation of stalactites and stalagmites I know is being experimented by um, John that it can become very quick instead of millions of years that they're raving on about. So can you comment on that, please? I agree. There's my comment. It can be very quick. It has been monitored in a number of places and can be extremely uh, quick. So I don't yes. have a problem with that. Again, if, you, if you'd like to you know, read something from a cave expert, we've got a, a chap particularly overseas who writes a lot on that and will give mm-hmm. you the rates of formation and so on. But I have no problem whatsoever uh, in all that I read, all that I've seen, that they can be created in a quite rapid period of time. Uh, and we've okay. done that experimentally as well. Yep. 
takes away, doesn't it? Uh, you've got to feel for the tour guide who's taking you through the cave system and wants to argue uh, millions and millions of years for the formation of those stalactites and stalagmites uh, if they were only formed rapidly over a few thousand. It takes all the romance out of uh, doing the sort of historic tour, doesn't it? Mm, that's when my wife asks me to be quiet when I'm on those tours. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, one did you say you had question. another one? Yes, go for another one. Is that okay? Yes. Uluru, our famous tourist centre. Uh, I've seen the thing on the, the website and had some information, but I'd love you to comment on it since you are an expert on this field. Yes, Uluru is a sedimentary rock, by the way, uh, sandstone and so on. It actually is not, um, when you look at many rocks, when you look at particularly cuttings, you'll see horizontal layers. Um where sediment is laid on top of sediment, and then more sediment is laid on top of that. But occasionally, in the earth shifting, uh, which would have occurred after the flood, um, you will actually get them tilted. Now, the the actual Uluru is standing almost vertical. So the sedimentary layers go up and down through the rock, not across the rock, if you you can understand what I'm saying there. In other words, it's a sedimentary layer that's been tilted at right angles, and now goes deep into the uh, into the earth as well. All you're seeing there is the top element of it. Uh, that's that's really significant, isn't it? Uh, because if you just think of that, because you can get that image in your mind uh, that Uluru, being a sedimentary rock, uh, is tilted. Uh, it must have taken a major cataclysmic event to tilt the rock. Now, is that is that just drawing? You know, to what are your thoughts around that? I think the real question comes back to time or how long it took. The argument will always be that it could be a slow process. I would say, no, it's a rapid process. And uh, I do so now from a Christian point of view. So one of the Psalms where God says, I will raise the earth and lower the sea floor uh, at the time of the flood. And so uh, in that raising of the earth, there would have been some, um, you know, cataclysmic you know, formations formed. Um, and particularly if you go on our creation.com website, you'll see uh, that um, Taz Walker has written many articles on incredible features in Australia that have been just torn apart and tilted and warped and so on. So all of that would have occurred at the raising of the land in order to drain the floodwaters off and the lowering of the sea floor. So yes, we would expect to see a lot of sedimentary rocks horizontal, but in many cases they are actually vertical as well. Steve, have we exhausted your questions? Oh, no, but, you know, I'd better give someone else a go. <laughs> you better. Okay, well, thank you so much for your call. Thank you, Steve. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. Let's take another call. Alex, let's see if I can get Alex. Yes, Alex is in Melbourne. Hey, Alex, welcome. Oh, hello there. Yes, I'm just wondering about the Ice Age, uh, if you can explain a bit more about that and parts of the earth were affected, please? Uh, Good question, Alex, because there is often a perception that the whole earth was affected, and it was not. Um, Essentially, you're talking about North America, Canada, and parts of the USA. In Europe, you're talking about parts of uh, particularly the the Scandinavian countries and the northern and central parts of England, those sort of areas, and of course Siberia as well, uh, were actually covered in ice. Um, in the southern hemisphere, it was it was quite restricted. You would find parts of, uh, for example, Chile in South uh, America were covered, and so on. So it was not a when we talk about a globalized age, it was not 
all over the planet. It was only in those uh, areas where it, uh, it extended out from the poles. And, uh, and from our point of view, from looking at the morphological, sedimentological, or all sorts of other evidence, we would argue that that ice age only occurred oh, for somewhere in the period of 500 to 700 years. And um, so that's our. It's it's not a it's not a global ice age. It's it's a, a restricted one that would have lowered the sea floor. We don't disagree with the secular scientists here. It would have lowered the sea floor, uh, sorry, the sea level, sea level by about eighty meters, maybe even a hundred meters, something like that. Uh, hence, the continental shelves would have been exposed at that time, and so that would have allowed migration of people, uh, migration of species of animals, and all sorts of things. It really would have connected much of the continents together for that five to seven hundred year period after the flood. Alex, anything further to add there? No, thank you very much. Thank you. One eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. If you'd like to join in our conversation, and uh, I mean, just what comes to mind from me when you talk about that ice age that followed the flood. If you're going to have peoples uh, who are disseminated around the world, then you need to have all sorts of ice or land bridges between continents to make that happen. So when we talk about where people groups have come from, and let's even just say Australian Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders, uh, we're talking about that being the way that you would have seen the the movement of people groups post-flood. Correct, Neil. Um, Whether it was complete land between all of them, uh, yes, there would have been much more land. Uh, But if there were strips of water, they would have been narrow and quite shallow as well. So it would have allowed migration of peoples uh, in that way. Now, we do know that some peoples have migrated through uh, um, using boats and so on. But the majority of people connecting around the world during an ice age would have simply been through through walking uh, where we can't walk today. And certainly Indonesia would have been an absolutely wonderful pathway for people to come. And uh, hence, I would argue then that's where the, the Aboriginals did come Uh, through that pathway there at that time. And challenging for some to hear creationist thoughts on the age of the earth and uh, therefore the age of the people groups and how long they've been in particular places. And we won't get into anything controversial today because we're talking about fossils. But uh, yes, the arrival of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia has to be in a biblical view only relatively thousands of years not not uh, tens of thousands i agree and uh, i mean it all comes back to we all we are all one blood and that's the most important point of it we're all of one blood and we all come from the same source and it's simply the the timing of the migrations that occurred is is a, it can be an argumentative point in the media today but i would argue that it did occur after the flood because after the flood, there was only eight people anyway that had to begin that process of repopulating the earth. And uh, from eight people, you can go to very large population very quickly. That's, uh, oh, that's quite significant. Uh, the way that, you know, breeding like rabbits, you might say. Exactly. And in fact, if the <laughs> earth was, and if, and if the planet was much, much older and humans have been around for a long time, I'd ask the question is where, where, are, the, where are the burial grounds? We would have seen billions of people in all of those periods of time, more than billions. But we don't find evidence of it. We find evidence of it going back to about 
4,000 years, 4,500. Let's come back to fossils and the rapid way that the pressure has to come on those fossils for their formation. Uh, When we're thinking of a global flood, uh, the water on the surface of the earth, and and I imagine I've thought this through myself and have my own questions about that, it wouldn't have been just a nice calm waters, would it? Because the way that tidal movements happen with that amount of water on the face of the earth, that is that enough pressure to do this sort of cataclysmic uh, fossil formation that we're talking about today? The, the turbulence would have been incredible, the velocities and so on, particularly when you model that from a, let's just say we, we, we took a planet which had only an ocean on it, uh, under the existing circumstances, the velocity speeds and, and uh, turbulence would have been incredible uh, at that time. But I will, I will come back to the sedimentary point there. The sediments would have been torn apart at the beginning of the flood, not at a later period. So it's in the initial turbulence, as the earth bursts forth and the rains poured down, that is when sediments are most uh, susceptible to be eroded. And that's the period when sediment does move. If you look at any flood today, sediment is at the beginning of the flood, not at the end of the flood. And so hence fossilization or the deposition of of, um, the burial of organisms, I would argue, would have occurred fairly early in the flood period. Anything else left floating around for a year, it becomes decomposed. So uh, what we see then is a not an evolutionary sequence of death. We see a a drowning sequence, a flood sequence of death. It was brutal and violent, you Mm. could say, what was happening uh, in that flood and post-flood era. Hey, taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's see if we can squeeze in one more. Herma is in Broken Hill. Hello, Herma. Welcome. Hello. I've just had a, a comment about the stalactites, how quick they can grow, because about, uh, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago, our water quality was really, really bad, and we neighbours of mine had a drip on their air cooler, and within eight days, a 10-centimetre long stalactite formed on that corner there, so... You Emma, you're saying that your home is actually a laboratory and, uh, and it's... <laughs> hey, let's uh, get a thought here because this is something that people can observe even in their own homes, uh, Ron. Uh, yes, and thank you very much for bringing that to our attention and showing that in your own home you can do that. Um, it does. It, again, it's another line of evidence that uh, this is a rapid process, can be a rapid process. Thank you to Herma for that comment. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. I want to ask you about what this means for us because for a lot of people there might be a fascination with hearing some new scientific breakthrough that changes what the establishment has been thinking. Where ought this lead for us in our own thinking, Ron, around what we think about the validity and the authenticity of a biblical account of the flood and what that might mean for our faith and how we pursue God. Any thoughts here from you? From a faith point of view, I think it's, ex- it's extremely important. Um, there is a, um, a growing perception that the book of Genesis is not accurate, uh, that it has elements of Mesopotamian or uh, other sources in it. Um, as a non-Christian, having accepted that the flood did occur, I then no longer argued with the book of Genesis. I thought, okay, 
The book of Genesis, the flood had been challenged throughout my entire life as not occurring. I now accept it as a scientist that it had occurred. I therefore therefore felt when I gave my life to Christ, uh, should I argue about the rest of the book of Genesis or should I simply accept it as being absolutely accurate? And so I think it's important to us that when we look at the book of Genesis in particular, because that is the foundation of the Bible. I mean, let's let's be let's be honest here. In there, we're shown who God is, uh, who we are. We committed a sin. We we changed everything. The rest of the Bible then is trying to explain how and showing us how God is getting us out of this situation. So, if we reject the Book of Genesis, I, I find that extremely difficult for us as Christians. So, from a flood point of view, I just said, well, if that is proven, I'm not going to argue about the rest of the Book of Genesis, and I accepted then. Uh, the rest of it, and that has just been a real blessing to me to uh, not have to argue with myself or argue with God over what he told me. Okay, taking one more call, we'll squeeze one last one in. Ty is in Western Australia. Hey, Ty, welcome along. Hi, Neil, how are you? Thank you. Very well. Um, I just wanted to know about the um, the four rivers that uh, come out of um Eden, Pishon, Gihon, and Tigris, and Euphrates. Um, they, I heard that there were still trenches um, pertaining to that those rivers. Is that is that correct? I don't think so. I think because the 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 earth we see today has no resemblance. I, I assume you're referring to the four rivers prior to prior to the flood. Is that correct? Yes. 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 But the the earth was completely restructured. The continents today do not bear any resemblance to what was there prior to the flood. It was a complete remapping of the world. And uh, the, the continents, the oceans, all were remapped. And we see that because sedimentary rocks are prominent across the entire planet. Um, so we know that basically most of the planet was restructured. Even when you look at the mountains today, if you look at the Himalayas or the Andes or the Rockies, they are sedimentary rocks by and large. And hence, they were created during the flood. So they did not exist prior to the flood. Uh, they were created after the flood. So basically, I would argue that uh, any any landform that we imagine occurred before the flood, that's it. It's our imagination only. There is no real record of that. Uh, I, I argue that from a geomorphic point of view, that's not possible. Ty in WA, thank you so much for your call. We do have to put a line under calls now. And uh, it's just been a very fascinating conversation this hour. And for listeners who are thinking, well, what is the evidence for the biblical flood? And uh, there's one dimension of that evidence that we've been talking about this past hour in the formation of fossils and the cataclysmic event that's necessary for the formation of fossils. Uh, So uh, you might like to listen to this podcast again. It'll be on a podcast a little later on this afternoon. But for those who are wanting to take this a little deeper right now, you can. And let me point listeners to creation.com. And I said earlier there's more than 10,000 articles that are searchable on the creation.com website. In fact, Ron tells me there's now as many as 15,000 searchable articles. And, uh, Ron, a lot of reliable science that people will be able to access when they go on to those articles. And so uh, evidence around sediments, around fossils, uh, dinosaurs. So if you type in your favorite topic around those sorts of things, you'll find all sorts of great detail. 
Uh, correct, Neil. In fact, I'd be cautious when I go onto the site. I wouldn't just type in the word flood. You'll get 2,000 articles. I would type flood when, how, where, those sorts of things. But no, uh, today we are so uh, delighted to be able to put 15,000 articles out there, written, by the way, uh, for the community. They're, whilst they're written by top scientists around the world, they are written in a manner that is, is explaining that to the community, not to other scientists. And, of course, uh, there's still some uh, some tertiary-level um, publications that people can access if they want to go even deeper again and get into the technical side. Correct. We do have a journal of creation. Um, most of the articles that will appeal to people will be from the magazine, which is written for them. In the journal, you'll find some really good, deep materials if you are really keen to go deeper. And no doubt you can get all sorts of things uh, digitally online. Uh, can you still get a hard copy of the Creation magazine? Absolutely. Yes, you can still subscribe to that. And we have Infobytes and other, other features as well. Simple thing is to go onto our website and explore all that. Um, and, um, yeah, it's just uh, you, you can register on, on site and sign up to anything you like. And you'd be able to connect with Dr. Ron Neller. In fact, Ron's got a very busy program. It's a huge year ahead. This is a big year for talking about creation. But creation.com is how you connect with Dr. Ron Neller, a geomorphologist. There's a great team of fabulous speakers that you're able to access there too. Ron Neller, creation.com, thank you so much for taking some time to share these thoughts with us today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. It was a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.